Rob read from Galatians uh, chapter 5, and uh, you know, it's a fair sized uh, chapter. And there's a lot of different things in here. In our church, we love to try and explain things. Uh, we, don't, we don't want to dumb things down. We want to be serious and understand what the Bible's teaching. But there are lots of different things in the Bible that are difficult to understand, maybe, if we're not used to it. So we're going to pause for a couple of weeks and try and explain where Paul's going. And I hope you'll find today helpful. I want to say... Uh, three very general introductory things, uh, first of all, about morality, freedom, and relationships, okay? And then we'll get into a little bit of context here in Galatians chapter 5. Why, why do I mention those three things? Well, you'll notice with me, just look with me at Galatians chapter 5. In verse 19, Paul gives a list of bad things. And he says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. And then he gives a list of vices or bad things. And then he says in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is all those things that we had on the screen, love, joy, peace and so on. So right here in this chapter, Paul is making some moral distinctions. He's given us a list of bad things. He's given us a list of good things. And I just want to pause there and think about that. The Bible is full of that kind of language. I think many people who are not Christians, uh, who think about the Bible vaguely, have a sense that the Bible is a book about morality. It's full of rules. Don't do these things. Make sure you do these things. I want to... um, I was was doing a fair bit of research this week. I was reading... uh, some very helpful comments by an American uh, writer, pastor called John Piper and uh, I'm going to read some quotes here but Piper argues I think this is very helpful I want you to think about this that you never hear in the Bible of God arguing with himself and giving himself rules to keep and saying to himself you know you must do this and you must do that you never hear God speaking to himself like that The reason for that is that God is inherently good. He doesn't need rules because what flows out of his heart is always righteous. You understand that? He doesn't need keeping in line. Um, Sometimes when we think about marriage, uh, you know, you can imagine um, being in a marriage. We went to a wedding on Friday in Liverpool. And the guy who was speaking was talking about this. And marriage doesn't work on the basis of rules, does it? Uh, you, you can't have rules in the kitchen, you know, dear wife, you know, this is what I'd like you to do. And uh, dear husband, you know, this is what I'd like you to do. Uh, ma- marriage works on the basis of something happening within us. And it's spontaneous. Um, and God is good. And so what he does is good. The problem is that we're not inherently good as God is and we need constantly reminding what is good and what is evil. We need that instruction. Let me read to you, though, the danger. The danger is, this is what Piper says, there's a great danger in giving 
morally depraved people like us a list of right things and wrong things. The danger is that instead of seeking transformation from God in our hearts to rid ourselves of our depravity, we may take the list of virtues and find a way to use them to express our depravity. For example, if our problem is that at root we are very proud and self-sufficient, and a moral authority like Paul tells us that kindness and faithfulness are virtues, we may very well train ourselves to do kind things and to keep our promises so that we can be proud of ourselves and feel morally self-sufficient. So the list of virtues would not have helped us overcome our depravity. It would actually have deepened our sin. Can you see that? When people, sometimes when we read the Bible, we can look into Old Testament stories. I've said this to you before, you know. In the Old Testament there were kings. And often we teach the children in Sunday school and we say, this king was a bad king. Don't be like him. This king, though, was a good king. You need to be try, try and be like him. Thanks very much, little Johnny and Mary. You can go home now. And the impression we give is that there's right and wrong. And what we're doing is moralizing. We're giving moral instruction. And we're asking people, our children or one another, to obey that moral instruction. The point is this. The Bible doesn't use rules in that way. You, you cannot make someone good by imposing rules on them. All you're doing is putting a plaster. What we need is a new heart on the inside. You can't effect real moral change by imposing rules. So the Bible does describe what's good and bad, but we need to be careful that we don't hear moralizing teaching. So that's what I want to say about morality, and I think that will become clear as we go through. The second thing that I wanted to say was about freedom. This chapter is all about freedom. Verse 1, Paul says, I don't know, you need a trumpet sounding when Paul says this. Celebration. Trumpets going off, fireworks going off. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Christianity is all about freedom. Jesus comes into the world to set us free from a kind of slavery. When we're thinking about morality, this is very encouraging, isn't it? Christianity is not a narrow, slavish thing. But in the gospel, God is doing something to set individual people like you and me free to be the people they were created to be. That's quite remarkable, isn't it? This is people who in their own strength could not and actually don't even want to live the kind of life that pleases God. But God comes alongside them and sets them free. He liberates us to be able to please him. He sets us free from our inability to please him and brings us to a place where real, true life is gloriously possible. 
So there's morality. This chapter is also about freedom. I want to show you as well that this chapter is very much about relationships. Um, these traits in the fruit of the Spirit are obviously relational traits. Uh, you'll understand with me that Paul's writing here to a group of churches. He's writing to Christian believers. And um, look with me at what he says uh, here. Verse 15. Paul says to these Christians, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you'll be destroyed by each other. And we might say, is he really writing to a Christian church there? They're biting and devouring one another. Their relationships are all over the place. Broken relationships. He says it right at the end in the very last verse. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. This is a church, you know, people have this impression that churches are, it's where all the good people are. But these churches were full of people who weren't getting on. They were arguing and biting one another. The description is, it's like wild animals. They wanted to tear each other to pieces. This is the church. This is not, uh, you know, some evil place. This is a church. So, here's one point I want to make about this is that Sometimes people talk about theology, don't they? And we think, oh, theology, that's boring, dry as dust. Paul writes here to a church. And this is not theology in a vacuum. This is not just interesting ideas and philosophy. He's telling them things so that their relationships will be healed. This theology is important. They need to know things so that they can live in a particular kind of way. So I just wanted to say those things by way of introduction. There is moral instruction here. This moral instruction comes to people who are basically at each other's throats. And what Paul is trying to urge them is to focus on the gospel so that they'll be free. And so that they'll be able to get along with one another in the church. What a challenge. This, this is real life, isn't it? So, let me, um, let me give you an overview. You know that sometimes, I, I like to think in pictures, and I, I'm not sure if this fully works, but this is where my mind has gone as I've been preparing. So let me just change the metaphor for a few moments. Some of you are old enough to remember this. On October the 30th, 1974, in a stadium in Zaire, in Africa, a very famous boxing match took place between George Foreman and Muhammad Ali. It was known as the Rumble in the Jungle. Most of you are too young to remember that, aren't you? So am I. I was only four, so I don't think my dad let me stay up to watch it on TV. The Rumble in the Jungle. Well, this is uh, my overview of Galatians. Uh, this. Here's, here's our boxing ring. And here's our uh, two boxers, not Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. In the red corner, in the red corner, we have the Judaizers. Let's give them that name. It doesn't mention that in the text. 
But let me explain who these two fighters are, biting and devouring one another. In the red corner of the Judaizers, these guys are the Jewish people. In many ways, they're a favoured group. They have the Old Testament, part of the Bible. They consider themselves God's people on earth. But they've now come to hear about Jesus. And they've come to believe in Jesus as the promised Messiah, the Saviour. They believe that Jesus is the fulfilment of all that Old Testament stuff that's gone on. But the reason I call them Judaizers is because they have this idea that if someone wants to become a Christian and believe in Jesus, they need to become a Jew first. You get that? So when you've got people who are not Jews, who are hearing about Jesus for the first time, these Judaizers in the red corner, get the colours right, in the red corner are saying, you Gentiles, you need to become Jews like us first, and then you can believe in Jesus. They insisted that adult Gentile men, in order to come to Jesus, had to be circumcised first. Imagine that. So we've got some guys here. Imagine that if you had to come to this church and we said, sorry, you can't come until you've been circumcised. That would be a sure way to empty a church, wouldn't it? But that, that, this is what the Judaizers were saying. They were seeking to impose their rules on everyone else. We might call them the religious group. That's the red corner. Have we got that? In the blue corner, we have new Gentile Christian believers. These are formerly pagans who have come to believe the gospel and they're brand new, if you like, baby Christians. These guys have no religious background whatsoever. And let me be clear, both of these groups would say, we believe in Jesus, but they're both mixed up in their thinking we'll come back to these guys later and, and probably a little bit more next week but um, this group they believe that God has forgiven them so it doesn't really matter in a sense how they live it doesn't really matter how we live God's forgiven us anyway we know Jesus, we're going to heaven it's really difficult to keep all the rules anyway I don't just mean circumcision rules, I'm talking about the Ten Commandments and all the moral law that God gave. We can't do it anyway, but isn't it great that God loves us and Jesus died for us? We're free, and we don't have to live uh, and keep all these rules. So I'm going to describe this group as the relaxed group. So have you got that? You've got two groups, the religious guys and the relaxed guys. So the conflict is like this. The religious group believe that rules are everything. We might call this legalism. Um, they don't just want to keep the rules, but they want to enforce the rules on everyone else as well. And you, we know people like this, don't we? They're, they're, they're sticklers for, for rules and keeping them and enforcing them and being strict and that's one group, the religious group. But the other guys and the others, they, they just say, well, we've become Christians, we believe in Jesus, rules don't matter anymore. 
So this is a battle, isn't it? This is a battle for what Christianity is. Both of these groups claim to be Christian. One side says life is all about keeping rules. One side says the rules don't matter. He's right. The truth is, they're both wrong. And that's the whole point of Galatians chapter 5. There is a third way. And it's really important for us to hear this. It's important for our culture to hear this. It's important for all of you to hear this. Because we will, as human beings, tend to veer towards one of those sides or the other. And the gospel is neither of them. And we need to be brought back to the gospel. Christianity is neither. But I've got to say, maybe you'll share this with me, I do have some sympathy with the Judaizers. I think sometimes they get a bad press in the Bible, you know, as being hypocrites and all the rest of it. But when you think about the first century, let me just flesh this out. When, when Paul says in the first century, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, I think the Judaizers would go, man alive, Paul, you haven't got a clue. If you tell these Gentiles that they're free, it'll just be chaos. They're like animals. Do you know the culture that we live in, Paul? You've got to be joking. Give it to them hard, brother. (laughs) Tell them they've got to keep the rules, Paul. Tell them they've got to obey. Don't be soft on their moral filth. They don't, don't tell them that they're free. Tell them that they've got to keep all the rules. Otherwise it'll be anarchy. Can you get that? Let me just read you some quotes here. The Judaizers feared that freedom would lead to permissiveness and license. Let me read some quotes. The sexual life of the Greco-Roman world in New Testament times was a lawless chaos. A man called J.J. Chapman describes a time in which Lucian lived in the first half of the second century and he said this, Lucian lived in an age where shame seems to have vanished from the earth. A man called Demosthenes writes, we keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for the day-to-day needs of the body, but we have wives in order to produce children legitimately and have a trustworthy guardian of our homes. Imagine that. It is hardly possible to mention a great Greek figure who didn't have a mistress. Alexander the Great had his Theus. Aristotle had his Hephilia. Plato is Archinassa. I'm not obviously a classical Greek scholar. Periclesis is Aspasia. Sophocles is Archippe. Seneca, a Roman writer, said, Chastity is simply a proof of ugliness. <laughs> a quote. Can you, can you believe someone would say that? If you're pure, it just means you're ugly. That's the kind of culture. Innocence, said Seneca, is not rare, it's non-existent. The greater the infamy, the wilder the delight, says Tacitus. One writer calls this red-blooded Gentile immorality. 
and, and there's worse than that the unnatural sins incest Caligula notoriously lived in incest with his sister Drusilla and the Emperor Nero didn't even spare his mother Agrippina We, we can perhaps understand the Judaizers. The culture was depraved. And pagan Gentile peoples were coming to faith in Christ. And the Judaizers were saying, if we don't shackle these people up and enforce rules on them, it's going to be anarchy. You can understand that, can't you? How can you talk of freedom, Paul? What these people need is a strong, firm hand, a sense of discipline. Does that, does that ring bells with you? Can, can you kind of see the conflict that's going on here? The problem is that you cannot change anyone by imposing rules on them. That isn't the gospel. What is needed is a genuine change of heart from the inside out. Christianity is not externally imposed morality. It is a new heart. Verse 1 seems to imply that there was a group in these churches that were undecided and Paul's appealing to them. They're not quite sure which side of this conflict is right or not. And look with me at Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. Paul says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised, if you fall for this, all you're doing is exchanging one form of pagan slavery for another form of religious slavery. What the Judaizers are saying is that if you want to be good, you need rules. Strict, sharp guidelines. People need knocking into shape. They should prove it by being circumcised. And by keeping holy days and proving how spiritual they are. I, I think these Judaizers, Judaizers are sincere. I think they genuinely believe that that is the answer to moral depravity. Pull your socks up, try harder, keep the rules. They mean well, but the weapons they fight with are useless. They're trying to fight sinful human nature with weapons that don't work. And they're actually leading people away from Jesus into the slavery of trying to keep rules. Why, why are the Judaizers wrong then? Let's, um, what's wrong with being religious? I'm going to deal with this this week and maybe we'll deal with the, the error of the Gentiles uh, next week. Um, let me just give you a few things. Why, why, are the, why are these Judaizers wrong? Well, first of all, they base their acceptance on their obedience. Their, their thinking is like this. Yeah, we believe in Jesus. It's great that Jesus came. But to be accepted with God, you've got to obey him and keep the rules. If you don't keep the rules, God will hate you. 
If you do keep the rules, God will love you. Many people live their lives on that basis. Their whole life is one of merit. The problem is that when we live like that, what we tend to do is be selective on which laws we try and keep. Are you with me? My acceptance with God depends on me keeping the rules. I can keep this one, and I can keep that one, and I can keep that one. But what we do is have a massive blind spot to all the ones that we can't keep. So we end up being very selective. What tends to happen is that we become very external, which is exactly where they went. They emphasised circumcision. They defined their spirituality by external things. This was a big issue for Jesus in the Gospels. Just uh, keep your finger in Galatians, and if you can, turn back to Matthew. Uh, I'm, I'm going to read it to you anyway, so you don't need to turn to it. Matthew chapter 23. Just listen to Jesus rebuking the religious. And these are serious words for us. We're, we're here in church, and they, these people were the religious people. Verse 23, Matthew 23, verse 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guards, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. What Jesus is saying is, you're so good at giving a tenth, you even tithe your spice rack. But you've forgotten to tell the truth. And you think you're acceptable for God because you're tithing, you're parsley, and you've forgotten justice. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. What a scathing thing for Jesus to say. Your life is like a tomb that's painted white on the outside, and inside it stinks. (laughs) That's what he's really saying to them. That's you, you religious people, hypocrites. You're selective. You think that you're keeping some laws, but you've forgotten the most important ones that are about truthfulness and justice and honesty and purity. Yeah, tell the Gentiles to be circumcised and keep holy days and eat pure food and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't matter if they gossip, so long as they keep all... Do you know, this kind of religion has been very, very popular in England. In the last hundred years, how do people in churches measure their spirituality? Well, we don't smoke, we don't have sex outside marriage, we don't get drunk, we wear nice middle-class clothes... But it doesn't stop us being critical, unloving, gossiping, 
jealous, bitter and selfish. We think that God likes us because we keep all these stupid external things and yet we ignore. What was it Jesus said? You, you, you're trying to take the speck out of other people's eyes and you've got a great plank of wood sticking out of your own eye. This kind of religion is hugely popular. Back in Galatians 5, the list of sins that Paul gives, I, this made me smile. Just imagine if you're a religious person in Galatia and that someone stands up to read this letter. Hey, we've received a letter from Paul. And they get to this point, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, and the person stands up and they read in the letter, they say, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. And the Judaizers go, Amen, brother, give it to them hard. Sexual immorality, Amen. Immorality, Hallelujah. You can imagine the Judaizers, oh, he's a good man, Paul. He knows how to put his finger on the culture. Impurity and debauchery, oh, Paul, if only you knew what was going on in this town. Give it to them. Idolatry and witchcraft, oh, you're right, Paul, superstitious. These people are pagans. And then Paul carries on, hatred. Hang on a minute. Discord. Hang on a minute. Jealousy. Fits of rage, selfish ambition. They're not so keen to shout amen then, are they? You get the picture? We all love, don't we, to jump on the big sins. These are the top five here, the first five in the list. Hallelujah, Paul, amen, give it to them. (laughs) But when he starts talking about sins that are in the heart... Well, that's a bit different, isn't it? Religious people base their acceptance on their supposed obedience. But they are very selective in which rules they keep. The third thing is that they rely on their own efforts to keep the rules their whole attitude is Bob the Builder isn't it, can I fix it, yes I can I can do this no worries well it's easy isn't it, if you only have to keep external rules and never worry about your heart attitudes God will be so pleased with my efforts, do you remember in the story, in the Gospels Jesus tells the story of a religious man who goes to the temple to pray And he stands up in front of everyone in the temple courts and with a loud voice he says, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you especially that I'm not like that sinner over there. I always give a tenth of my goods to you, God. And he just gives a whole list. He's He's basically giving God a shopping list, ticking off all the things he thinks he's good at. DIY religion. Can I fix it? Yes, I can. The other man in the corner, with his face to the ground, it said, Jesus said, he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
Jesus said, do you know which one went home right with God? It wasn't the show off. It was the one who cried out for mercy. The fourth thing, this is the real danger. This is what causes the conflict. The fourth thing about religious people is that they tend to be very proud and very critical, very judgmental and look down on other people. Why can't everyone else be like me? That's the, that's the thought of a religious person. Paul isn't that impressed. And he uses some very, very strong language here. I hope you don't mind Paul almost being a little crude here. He says in verse 12, As for those agitators... I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. I think the NIV sanitises what Paul's saying there. What Paul's saying there is, if you think that your acceptance with God depends on you cutting off a bit of foreskin and being circumcised, why don't you go the whole way and just castrate yourself? Then you'll be super holy. That's the argument Paul uses. If you think that's what matters to God, cut the whole thing off. Then you'll be super clean. What a ridiculous thing to think that acceptance with God comes by circumcision. Cut your arm off. Cut a leg off. Cut it all off. God will think you're ace. <laughs> he's, he's playing with them. He's being very sarcastic and not a, a, a little crude. The problem for us is that the rules in terms of God's moral law, are good. The truth is that we're sinners and we cannot keep them. The issue is that we can't do it. You and I have natures that are sinful and, and corrupted by sin. Even the good things that we do are tainted with selfishness. We're not perfect. And the problem for religious people is that they think they're doing okay when they're not. If you think you can gain acceptance by keeping rules, the truth is that you are living under a curse. Because it's impossible to do. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 3, Paul says, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's required to obey the whole law. What Paul's saying there is you can't be selective, you can't pick and choose which bits you want to keep and which bits you're going to ignore. If you are going to base your acceptance with God on keeping rules, the bottom line is you have to keep all of it. Every, every part of it. You break one bit of it and you've broken all of it. What we try to do is reinterpret the rules to make it fit, to make us feel better. Well, let, let me um, draw to a close for this week. Uh, we'll, we'll continue thinking about some other things next week. Why does Paul speak of freedom?
then? Why, why on earth does Paul say it is for freedom that Christ has set us free? Well, so I'll put both up. Here, here we go. This is the freedom that comes in the gospel. The work of Jesus sets us free from the penalty of not being able to keep the rules. But that's only half of it. The work of the Spirit sets us free from the power of our sinful nature and enables us to live lives that will please God. It's all down to what God does in us. Let's deal with those one by one and then we're done. We've seen some clues here already uh, in, in the verses that Rob read for us. In verse 11, Paul says, If I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. Somehow, this freedom relates to the cross. We've been singing about it this morning. Let me explain. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come into the world. And what he has done is he has kept the rules perfectly. Not because someone imposed them on him, but because that's what he's like from the inside. He's good. He's very good. And he came into the world to live the life that we could never live. He submitted to the rules and he kept them all perfectly. But he also died the death that we deserve on account of our failure to live the lives that we should. Jesus, in other words, deals with our failure. He pays our debt. He bears our sins. The big change here that has happened is that because of the cross, the law now cannot touch you. You're not under the law anymore when you believe in Jesus. It has nothing to say to you. It can't condemn you. If the law suddenly says, guilty, you can say, I know, but I'm not frightened of you. Because Jesus has satisfied all your demands. My debt to you, Mr. Law, has been fully paid by Jesus. That means that I'm free. The law no longer has any hold on you. It can't make any demands on you. Your status has changed as a Christian believer from being under the law to being under grace. It's a different environment altogether. You are free from condemnation when you believe in Jesus. Completely free. Enjoy it. Let me read to you uh, some other verses. Let me change these very quickly. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by our sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. I want you to understand the power of the cross. When you feel tempted to veer into being a Judaizer, when you feel tempted to think, I need to obey God so that he'll love me, you need to remember the cross. You don't need to obey God to make him love you. You could never do it anyway. Jesus died to set you free from all that. The law has no hold on you. It cannot pronounce you guilty while ever you're believing in Jesus. Because of the cross, God can say over your life and heart, not guilty. You're free. Isn't that the most amazing news to sinful people who fail every day? That their sins will never condemn them to hell because Jesus has borne that hell for them already. I can't tell you anything any better than that. So these Judaizers who are trying to impose their rules on everyone else are wrong. What they're actually doing is leading people away from Jesus to keep rules. For a Christian, the issue is not your performance. The issue is your faith in Jesus. It is not about what you have done or not done or will do or won't do. The issue is do you believe in Jesus? In Galatians chapter 5 verse 6, Paul says, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You can't brag if you are circumcised and you can't brag if you're not circumcised. It's actually irrelevant now. What counts is faith in Jesus. If you are plugged into him, the law cannot touch you. Can can I ask you, I want to be really straightforward, can I ask you this? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died to save you personally? He died for you. Sometimes we come to church and think, oh, it's a good sermon for the person sitting next to me. I'm glad they're here. Let me kind of wind all that back. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? He has bought your freedom at the cost of his own life. He has paid your debts. He loves you and brings you into the freedom of his family. Your status is secure and safe in Jesus. This is the deal, isn't it? If you rely on you, you'll never be sure Your status with God will always be flaky. Have I done enough? Don't know. Might have done. Never know. All the time it's kind of a guessing game. But when you trust in Jesus, you have everything you need. 
But that's not all. We'll deal with this second point more next week. The work of the Spirit to frees us from the power of the sinful nature. The problem is that everything I've just said was offensive to the Judaizers because they wanted to shackle people with rules. Remember the other corner in the other group who mistook this freedom for permission to sin. We've made an art form of this as evangelical Christians. It's all grace. It's all of grace. If Christ has died to make us free, it doesn't really matter how we live. But that's not how Paul argues here. Look at verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, but rather serve one another in love. The key thing here is the work of God's Spirit renewing and changing and transforming our hearts. I've said to you many times, and I'll never tire of saying this, the Christian gospel is not just about letting us off. But the Christian gospel is actually much much more than that it is about lifting us up and enabling us to be the people that God wants us to be when you put your faith in Jesus the spirit indwells you and spares you and inspires you and changes you and transforms you it isn't all happening in an instant we'll deal with this more next week but it is the spirit of God who produces this fruit That's why it's called fruit. You can't buy it. You can't make it. It grows naturally within because the Spirit is working His life out through you. You cannot make someone good by imposing rules on them. God does so much more than that. He pays our debt and He puts His Spirit in us to enable us to live in a way that pleases Him. In the Old Testament, this is what God said to his people in the Old Testament. The book of his prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36. He said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Do you get the difference here? Some people think religion is just like God gives us rules, we try our best to keep them. If we do well, he'll like us. If we don't, he won't. That isn't it at all. We need forgiveness first and then we need power. And what God gives us is his spirit to indwell us and to incline us to follow him. These, things, these traits then, as we get into the fruit of the Spirit, this is where we started. I have to remember where we started. These traits, when you hear these traits, love, joy, peace, don't mishear the preachers who will come to talk about them. Don't think that this is a competition and that somehow you've got to do all these things to impress God. What you need to do is trust in Christ for salvation 
And the Spirit will bear these fruits in your life. I don't want you to think, I can do it. And neither do I want you to think that you can't do it. Actually, both positions are wrong. You can do it, but only with the Spirit's help. And the amazing thing is that this very gospel will protect you from pride on the one hand, because it's not all about you and your success, it's about God and his work, but it will protect you too from despair and giving up, because every day you can come back to God for forgiveness and new power. The Christian gospel has resources to help us to live in freedom because of the work of Jesus and the work of his spirit. Freedom is found in Jesus, not in rules. But it's not a freedom to sin. It's a freedom to love and to serve and to live for him. I pray that every single one of you will know the reality of that gospel in your hearts. Amen.